How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This podcast features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Alan Gelzo. I'm David Rubenstein. I'm going to be in conversation today with Alan Guelzo, who is one of the nation's leading historians on the Civil War. We're going to talk today about his new book, Robert E. Lee, A Life. And we're coming to you from the New York Historical Society's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me here, David. Now, why do so many people for so long admire Robert E. Lee? He, he lost the war, his side lost the war. He was a traitor, you could argue. Yes. Um, he was a slave owner. He beat his slaves. Why were so many people so uh, in awe of this man for all those failings that he had? People had been in awe of Robert E. Lee for years. His personal demeanor was so extraordinary, so commanding. I mean, for one thing, he's, he's six feet, six feet one inch tall. Most of his height in his trunk. He dominated people. Even Ulysses Grant spoke about how intimidated he felt in the presence of Robert E. Lee. And this is a story that gets repeated over and over again by people that knew Lee or encountered Lee during the war. He could be a very domineering person. And people after the war would look back at him and say, here is an extraordinary leader. Let's talk about his background, his family. So is the Lee family a distinguished family? Well, in many respects, yes. There were four brothers at the time of the Revolution, two of whom signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, Richard Henry Lee, who puts forward the original motion for independence, and Francis Lightfoot Lee. Uh, two other brothers, Arthur Lee and William Lee. Arthur Lee is a diplomat on behalf of the Revolution. Uh, William Lee also provides services this way. And yet after the Revolution, it's like something goes snap in the Lee family. And property is lost. Many of the Lee uh, resources uh, simply disappear. Um, the recession that takes place after the end of the revolution impoverishes many of the Lees. So who was his father? His father is Henry Lee III. He's part of a branch, what you might call a cadet branch of the Lee family from the area of Leesburg, Virginia. But he earns this wonderful reputation during the, the American Revolution as a commander of light cavalry. And so he becomes known simply as Light Horse Harry Lee. And he's very successful under Washington. Washington sends Light Horse Harry to the Southern Campaign to assist Nathaniel Green in what will become one of the great campaigns in American history that culminates in the victory at Yorktown. He comes to the end of the Revolution with this great reputation, and that's when it all goes spiraling disastrously down. 
because of bad investments he made? Bad investment after bad investment. He invested in Western lands that he thought were going to turn tremendous development profits and which never did anything. So he spends a year or so in debtor's prison and then after that, because he's in such disgrace, he leaves the country. He leaves debtor's prison and then actually gets in worse because as a Federalist, he takes the side of some Federalists in Baltimore. There's a riot. He gets beaten within an inch of his life. And after that, he simply says, I can't stay around here anymore. I need to go to the West Indies to recover my health. Did he ever come back? He did, two weeks before his death. And when he went to the West Indies, how old was Robert E. Lee? Six years old. So he never really had much of a relationship with his father. No, and the shadow of that absence casts long, long darknesses over the life of Robert E. Lee. So who raised him? His mother, in large measure, and his mother, who was a Carter, a Virginia Carter, so that's saying something. His mother, plus this wide skein of Carter relatives. He had something like 80 first cousins. If he, if he had thrown a brick down a street in Alexandria, where he lived with his mother, he would have hit someone he was related to. So how did he wind up at, the, uh, at West Point? Because West Point was a free education. He had a yen for mathematics. He was a math nerd in his early schooling. And the one place where you could go and get an education in mathematics and engineering was West Point. So he goes to West Point and he's trained and educated as an engineer and does it so extremely well at West Point. Graduates second in his class and uh, receives one of those coveted appointments to the United States Army Corps of Engineers. So his job, though, becomes that of an engineer. Yes. He's not a combat person. No. No. So, in, fact, in fact, his specialty within engineering is coastal engineering, which is a very special and specialized form of engineering and construction. But that's where he spends the largest part of his career, as a coastal engineer for the U.S. Army. And doing, and what, where in the United States did he do that? Well, he's posted first to uh, Cockspur Island in the Savannah River. That's where Fort Pulaski is built, and of course Fort Pulaski is still there as a national monument. He is then moved to Fortress Monroe, where he oversees the construction of what was called Fort Calhoun in the middle of uh, Hampton Roads. Uh, he's then sent to St. Louis, and there he spends several years reconstructing the wharfage and the flow of the river past St. Louis, because at that point St. Louis given the, the, the unpredictability of the Mississippi River. St. Louis was in danger of becoming an inland town. From there, he goes to Fort Hamilton uh, on the Narrows here in New York City. He's the post engineer here for a number of years. Uh, it's only then that he actually gets an assignment that will take him into a war zone, and that's with the outbreak of the Mexican War. So he goes to the Mexican War, and who is the leader of the American troops there? The person who has his eye on Robert Lee at that point is Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott's responsible for the invasion of Mexico from the coast at Veracruz up along the old road followed originally by Hernando Cortez to Mexico City. And Lee joins Scott's staff as an engineer. But Scott sees right away there's a lot more going on with this young man Lee than just doing engineering jobs. And he becomes a key staffer 
for Winfield Scott. What about Ulysses S. Grant? Was he there as well? Ulysses Grant was there as a junior lieutenant, and there is actually a point at which Lee and Grant, their paths do cross. Lee is bringing orders to one of the headquarters, one of the officers in uh, Scott's army, and Grant is there at, because he was serving as, as a quartermaster officer, and they're there together in the same room. At Appomattox, at Appomattox, Grant, in an effort to try to gin up some small talk, will say to Lee, oh, I remember you. Uh, we met during the Mexican War at, at so-and-so. And Lee's response is very, very politic. He says, you know, I have been trying to remember what you looked like, too, but I just have not been able to do it. So being a military person then was a secure job. You weren't well paid, but Lee decided to marry well. Yes. So who did he marry? He marries Mary Anna Randolph Custis, who is the sole surviving child of George Washington Park Custis, the step-grandson of George Washington. And George Washington Park Custis not only owns a number of the Washington properties in Virginia, but he also owns this property on the bluffs overlooking the Potomac where he builds a house that he calls Arlington. Now today, of course, we know that as Arlington National Cemetery. But when Lee marries into the Custis family, Arlington becomes his home. So the Civil War breaks out, and why is it that um, Lincoln allegedly says, I want Robert E. Lee to be my top military official, and the South and the Virginia Army say we want him as well? What actually happened? Was, was Lee actually offered the top job in the uh, Union Army? The almost top job. And he's offered that because Winfield Scott, who is still at this point General and Chief of the Army, is really too old to take active command of a field army that would discipline the secessionists. But Scott has always had this extraordinarily high opinion of Robert E. Lee. And Scott's recommendation to President Lincoln and to Secretary of War Simon Cameron is that whatever active field army you send across the Potomac, Robert E. Lee should be its commander. So Lincoln enlists the aid of one of the premier political operatives in Washington, D.C., Francis Preston Blair, Sr. And Lee is called to a meeting with Blair, and Blair makes the offer on behalf of Lincoln. Lee turns him down. Because? His official explanation was, I cannot draw my sword against my native state, meaning Virginia. Well, Virginia hadn't quite seceded at this point. That question was not yet resolved. That was still hanging in the air. Then the other thing which enters into it, after the meeting with Blair, he goes a few blocks over to the Army's headquarters, meets with Scott, and as he explains things to Scott, I can't accept command of this army, because if I do, my children will lose title to Arlington and the other Custis properties. 
In other words, the South would say, you are a traitor to the South or your state, Virginia, we're going to take this house, which is the legacy for your children, away from them. Exactly. We're going to confiscate that. And in fact, there were people in Richmond at that moment who were calling for exactly that sort of thing. Let's confiscate that property. Let's plant artillery batteries there because that's going to command Washington, D.C. So he ultimately says no to the Union, but then the South comes to him and uh, Jefferson Davis says, what about us? Lee is trying to sort out what is likely to happen. And although we know what happens in April of 1861, people then were not really sure. Was there going to be a war? Wasn't clear. Winfield Scott himself had handed out assurances. No, there's not going to be a war. What's going to happen is these southern states are going to declare that they have seceded and formed this new government, the Confederate States. But after a while, there will be a national convention, everybody will get back together, and there will be reconstruction. That's the first instance, in fact, when this word reconstruction gets used. So Lee is listening to this from Scott, and he's trying to think, how can I thread this needle so that on the one hand, I'm not jeopardizing the property of my, uh, my children's expectations of inheriting this property? How, how can I do that, and yet at the same time, not make a commitment one way or the other that's going to trigger something. And in trying to sort that out, he listens to the invitation that is made by the governor of Virginia to come to Richmond. He does that. They offer him command of Virginia forces. He accepts. With every step he takes, he gets deeper and deeper and but deeper But at that in. time, had Virginia seceded yet? By that point, yes. Okay. And was it clear there was going to be a military confrontation that Virginia was going to be involved with? No, that's, that's the point. It was not at all clear from things that Scott had said, even from things that Lincoln was saying, that there was going to be some kind of military confrontation. All right, so ultimately he takes this position as the head of the Virginia Army. How does he ultimately become the head of the entire Confederacy? He doesn't actually become head of the entire Confederate Army until February of 1865. But he does become an officer in the Confederate Army at the behest of Jefferson Davis, the new president of the Confederacy. Why? Because Jefferson Davis had been Secretary of War during the years when Robert E. Lee had been the superintendent at West Point. And with the influence of Winfield Scott and Scott's opinion of Lee, Davis had come to believe that Robert E. Lee was a great commander. And therefore, Davis makes the offer to Lee we want to make you a brigadier general. We want you to take some kind of command role. I want you to be an assistant and an advisor to me. And by the time we get to the middle of May, 1861, I mean, a month, only a month has transpired. Now Robert E. Lee is sitting at the right hand of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. But had Lee ever commanded troops in combat? Only one time. And that was the suppression of John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry when he commands, wait for it, two companies of U.S. Marines. So to lead the Confederate forces, what is Lee's strategy to kind of win that war? One thing he sees very clearly is that the South does not have the resources to go through a long drawn out war. So to speak, the South doesn't have the resources to do a 15 round heavyweight bout. It's going to have to score a surprise knockout in the first couple of rounds if it's going to win. 
The only way to do that, Lee sees, is for the Southern armies to get off the defensive. I mean, that was the original plan of Jefferson Davis. We're just going to stand on the defensive. We're not going to take any offensive action. Lee sees, no, that's a recipe for defeat. What we need to do is we need to take the war north, over the Potomac, into Maryland, maybe draw Maryland to the side of the Confederacy, move up into Pennsylvania. In other words, carry on a campaign that will so discourage Northern political opinion that the Northern public will demand that Lincoln go to the negotiating table with the Confederates. Once he sits down at the negotiating table with the Confederates, it's really going to be all over. So the most famous instance of that is when Lee takes his troops up to Pennsylvania and fights at Gettysburg. Exactly. So this is, uh, what year is that? This is 1863. And uh, how many troops does, uh, does Lee have then? Lee probably has something on the order of 80 to 83,000 men. And did he want to have a fight at Gettysburg or he didn't know where he wanted to have a fight? He was prepared to see how things turned out once he got loose into Pennsylvania, because he could have a win-win proposition by invading Pennsylvania. If he moved into Pennsylvania and nothing happened militarily, that was still a tremendous embarrassment to the Lincoln administration. But if he moved into Pennsylvania and actually won a military victory on Pennsylvania soil, that would be the end of the Army of the Potomac. That, I mean, at that point, he could, he could move on Philadelphia, he could move on Baltimore. So the battle in Gettysburg goes on for four days. Three. Three, three days. days. July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863. Okay. And then on the final day, there's the famous Pickett's Charge. What is Pickett's Charge? Pickett's Charge was Lee's decision that after two days of fighting, the Union Army of the Potomac was so clearly hanging on the ropes that all that was needed was to wade in with one good, solid attack, one good, solid punch, and that would have them out on the canvas. So he has an entire Confederate division under, under George Pickett, plus ancillary troops drawn from two other divisions, and oh, maybe about 14,000, 15,000 men who are going to launch an attack on the key position of the Union Army there. And he came within an ace of succeeding, too. But it didn't succeed. So in the end, Lee decides he needs to retreat. Yeah. And he tries to go back across the Potomac. He tries, yes. And why doesn't the Union General Meade chase him and then end the war right there by capturing Lee? Well, he, he arguably could have, and certainly Abraham Lincoln thought he should have, because the Potomac had been flooded from heavy rains. Lee was backed up against the Potomac at Williamsport, Maryland. Meade is a cautious person by instinct. And what's more, he's just won this victory at Gettysburg. Should he jeopardize it by launching some kind of an attack on Robert E. Lee? Lee might prove to be more formidable in defending his position. So Meade delays and delays, and when he finally resolves to move against Lee, the night before, Lee has managed to cross the Potomac, and his army is now on the Virginia side. So eventually, um, Lincoln says to Grant, come from the West and take command of the Union troops, and Grant's strategy is to go into Virginia and to wear down uh, Lee's troops, more or less. Is that right? Not quite. Grant had a very different view of things. But he was a soldier taking orders. So for the first two months of what become known as the Overland Campaign, Grant does exactly what Lincoln wants. 
slog, attack, slog, attack, until finally the campaign has worked its way all the way down to Cold Harbor and the Chickahominy River. The casualty list is enormous, and, and Grant still is, is not victorious. At this point, Grant says, I think I've satisfied all the questions about how this campaign should be fought. Let me do it my way now. My way is get south of the James River, clamp Richmond, the city of Richmond, in a siege, and let that starve the Confederates. In other words, don't look for big field battles with Lee. That's not the way the war is going to be won. The war is going to be won by eliminating the main sources of supply and logistics for Lee's army. And Grant does exactly that. The siege lasts until April of 1860, the beginning of April 1865, and the proof, so to speak, is in the pudding. Because once Richmond falls, Lee's army survives for only one week afterwards. Put it in context, it's July of 1863 when Gettysburg occurs, a terrible loss for the Confederacy, but they survive for another two years. Yes, they do. So ultimately, Grant comes forward, he in effect almost starves the Confederate troops. When does Lee decide, I need to surrender? By the time Lee has abandoned Richmond and taken his army westward, he's trying to get ahead of Grant. He expected that Grant would, as now the captor of, of Richmond, stage a great parade and have a great celebration and basically waste a couple of weeks. Grant doesn't. 24 hours, Grant is bounding after Lee, runs Lee to ground, at Appomattox Courthouse in, uh, to the west of Richmond. And there Lee finally looks at the facts straight in the eye and says, we, we can't really go on this way. I'm going to have to ask General Grant on what terms he will accept our surrender. And Grant had previously said the only surrender terms are unconditional surrender. He said that at Fort Donelson in 1862. And that was what Lee was afraid he was going to say at Appomattox. And if he did, Lee had resolved that he would try to fight it through all the way to Lynchburg. And there were officers on Lee's staff who argued with Lee and said, what we should really do is Lee's army, the Army of Northern Virginia, it should be told, dissolve, go into the mountains, convert this into a guerrilla war, drag this out for years and years and years in the mountains and forests of the Appalachians. And Lee's response to that is, no, we have lost this war. We need to admit that. I will go to General Grant. If he does the unconditional surrender thing, all right, then we'll continue. But if he offers any kind of decent terms, we will surrender this army. What were the terms that Grant offered? parole for all of Lee's army. No humiliating surrender parade, no death march to prison camps. All of Lee's soldiers will be paroled and allowed to go home. Officers will be allowed to keep their sidearms. This is a ceremonial point because that was, it was a, a point of honor. And soldiers who were going to go home to spring planting, could take a horse or a mule from the Confederate Army stock of them, take that home with them to get back to the work of farming and planting. But is Lee surrendering for all the Confederacy or just the Virginia Army? Just the Virginia Army. Although the next day, Grant will ask to meet with Lee 
and ask if Lee would extend these surrender provisions to include all the Confederate armies. At which point Lee's response is, no, I really don't have the authority to do that. The say-so for that would have to come from Jefferson Davis. So what does Lee do? He goes home, and his home was taken over by the, uh, by the northern troops, right? Oh, yes. Arlington had been seized by, by Union troops very early in, in the war. And there was a cemetery made there, so there's not the, likely he's going to go back and live over a cemetery. The property, in fact, had been sold for taxes to the federal government, and the quartermaster general of the Union Army, Montgomery Meigs, decided to convert the property right. into a national cemetery. And not only a national cemetery, but into a refugee camp for fugitive slaves called the Freedmen's Village. So he ultimately, though, takes a job. What's the job he takes? President of Washington College. And why does he take that job? Is Washington a famous college then? No. It was really not much more than a finishing school for the Scots-Irish gentry of the upper end of the Shenandoah Valley. And I think one major reason why he does agree to accept the offer of the trustees of Washington College is that will get him almost as far away from Washington, D.C. as he can get and still be within the terms of his parole staying in Virginia. Washington, D.C. being the place that at that point was baying for Lee to be put on trial for treason. But Lee actually was indicted. He was indicted. But never actually tried. Why not? When Lee learned about the indictment, and this indictment happens in May of 1865, he immediately writes to Grant and says, I thought we had a parole agreement. And my understanding was that the parole would insulate myself and my soldiers from any indictments or accusations of treason. Grant takes it as a point of honor. And Grant goes to President Andrew Johnson, Johnson now being the president after Lincoln's murder, and makes that case. Johnson's response is, well, look, Lee is a traitor. Uh, my attorney general, James Speed, is telling me he should be put on trial, that military paroles don't extend as far as uh, civilian accusations of treason. And Grant's response is, in that case, I will resign as general-in-chief. Well, if there's one thing Andrew Johnson couldn't afford politically at that moment was to have Ulysses Grant resign as general-in-chief. So, Johnson backs off. So in the end, uh, in your view, Robert E. Lee is a traitor, a great American, in between? He committed treason. I can't put it any other way. Here's the complicated and conflicted part of Robert E. Lee, and that is he will say in a letter that he writes to his wife in 1856, slavery is a moral and political evil in any country. He will insist in the years after the war that he pleaded with Jefferson Davis to emancipate the Confederacy's slaves because slavery was a millstone around the Confederacy's neck. And yet at the same time, he is the man commanding armies that are defending slavery, that if he had succeeded, slavery would have been perpetuated. How does one sort this out? He sees the differing issues and he makes no effort to try to resolve them at all. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. 
you can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.